For most of Wednesday night, lawmen continued to unearth bodies. All supposedly young boys, early to mid-teens, all had their hands tied, the bodies wrapped in plastic. Lime had been poured over the victims to help decompose the bodies. It did a more than adequate job. Bits and pieces of skeletons were removed time and time again. In some cases, flesh clung to bones like jelly. The stench inside that shed was almost overpowering. Those with weak stomachs stayed out. Just before closing down the digging operations for that night, a lieutenant in the Houston Homicide Division talked about the victims, and he talked about the killers. How would you classify this series of crimes? Just like I said, a while ago, hell of a sadistic type of a clown that pull something like this. Welcome to Crime Shots. I'm Bree. And I'm Joe. Today we're going to be talking about Dean Coral, the Candyman. So in 1939, December 24th, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Dean Coral was born. He was described as a, as a shy, serious child. So I don't know, I don't know what that pertains to. I guess a, a serious child. Anyway, his mother was super protective. And his dad was super strict. Uh, he had a brother named Stanley, born in 1942. And at age 11, uh, so this is 1950, at age 11, Dean was diagnosed with rheumatic fever. Apparently, he had had it. So are you I'm familiar need, with rheumatic I, fever? No, I'm going to need you to explain that to me. <laughs> so apparently, it results from uh, inadequately, and this is, I guess, straight from Google, it results from inadequately treated strep throat or scarlet fever. It's super rare, but apparently you can, doctors can diagnose you with rheumatic fever just based on your symptoms, right? So he had a heart murmur and that's how they, that's one of the symptoms of rheumatic fever. So that's, they didn't know he had it. He, apparently he had been living with it since he was, I think, seven. And they didn't even know he had it until they, they found the heart murmur. And then they started looking into it and were like, oh, wow, he had rheumatic fever. So I actually have heard, I was listening to some other stuff, and there was actually, somebody had mentioned that they were diagnosed with rheumatic fever by a doctor. And the doctor was like, oh, did you have rheumatic fever? And he was like, no. And he was like, yeah, you did. Just because he had those symptoms. I'm not sure 100% what symptoms he had. That's crazy. I've never heard of it. Yeah, it's well, it's super rare. But mm -hmm. apparently the symptoms leave a leave a trail. I mean, it's oh, okay. So doctors can determine later on in life whether or not you have right. had whether you had it, right? Yeah. Whether you had it or whether you have it or whatever. So apparently it leaves pretty serious damage, um, and it's just literally it results it from from inadequately treated strep throat or scarlet fever. So I guess anybody can get it. It's just it's not easy to get. So in 1946. His mother, Mary Emma Robinson, and his father, Arnold Edwin Coral, divorced. So seven years after Dean seven is years. born. So he's seven years old. Mm -hmm. At seven years old, his parents divorced. Apparently, they fought and argued all the time. Right. They remarry in 1950. 
which is the, about the time. So he's age 11. This is about to the each time other? they figured out he had rheumatic fever. Yes, to each other. They oh. remarried. They got married again. Oh. <laughs> and then they get divorced again in 1953. Of course, because it didn't work the first time. Right. So his mother ends up marrying a traveling salesman named Jake West. They moved to Vider, Texas. Oh, Vider. Right outside of? I don't know. Beaumont. Oh, is it? Right. I just know it's East Texas. Yeah, it's right outside of Beaumont, isn't it? I don't know. We go through Vider when we're going to Louisiana. Do you? Yeah. Sometimes. Why? So when you go to, what are you doing? Going to Lake Charles? Because Um, that's like south. Super south. Super southeast Texas. Is it? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we if go. If you're going to Louisiana, you're going. If you're going to Shreveport, you're going through Tyler. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. we do that because we always used to stop at Dad's hut. But mm-hmm. we went through Vider a couple of times when we went to New Orleans. Okay, well, New Orleans, I guess, makes sense. Again, south. New Orleans. New Orleans. And Vider obviously is known for. Um, we did an episode on Kathy Page. Her unsolved murder, allegedly by her husband. Wasn't that Have Bird too? Huh? Bird too, right? No, his didn't have an inviter. His was in Jasper. Oh, right, right, right. They all sound the same. So his mom moved to Vider. Okay, so they they moved to Vider. So him, his mom, Jake West moved to Vider. Dean went to Vider High School between 1954 and 1958. He was a well-behaved student. He got good grades. He was considered to be a loner, and he occasionally dated girls as a teen. None were named. So, Occasionally dated girls? Occasionally dated girls. Did he occasionally a... date boys? Negative. No, this oh, okay. was frowned upon. At the time. We're talking about the 1950s. That was not okay. Okay, gotcha. Uh, he played the trombone in the high school band. That was pretty much his sole interest. He was just not into anything else in high school. But he was real big into the trombone. He graduated Vider High School in 1958. And him and the family moved northwest outskirts of Houston. In 1960, Dean moved back to Indiana to live on a farm that his grandmother owned. So his grandmother, his grandfather had just died. So his mom decided he needed to go help his grandmother. So he went to the farm uh, in back in Indiana to help her. He met a girl and they kind of started talking. Her name was Wanda. That's really the only thing that is known about that scenario. They started talking. They kind of developed a relationship of some sort. Apparently, they made some type of movies together. Oh, really? Yeah, it was more, it was like a, they said it was kind of like comedy, but. Sure it was. It involved Wanda's sister laying on a table with animal entrails on her midsection. Shut up. And somebody was, like, acting like they were dissecting her. 
um, or cutting her apart. It was, yeah, it's odd. It was an odd thing. Apparently, odd. the parents thought it was funny. Of course they. Well, because what else are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to admit to the world that it's creeping them out? No, they're like, oh, this that. is funny. Kids are just being kids. Kids, kids will be kids. They'll just, you know, guts and things. I'm just not kids. that parent. I'm not that parent. I will call you out on your shit. <laughs> well, first of all, clean up the mess. <laughs> Secondly, what the hell's going on? Exactly. So in 1962, he moves back to Houston uh, to help out with the candy company. We'll talk about that. So the, the family moved to the Heights, to the Houston Heights, which was kind of an infamous, we'll say, neighborhood in Houston. It was uh, real rundown, real low end. So his mom had started a company, a candy company named Pecan Prince. Dean and Wanda kept in contact the whole time doing, I guess they were like pen pals. They were mailing back and forth. Occasionally she would call. At one point she calls him and this is, so they talked a lot. At one point she calls him and he's kind of surprised to find out that she's getting married. So he asks who she's getting married to. And she says, you. Oh, um, so, so he moves away, and then she just calls him up and is like, oh, I'm getting married to you. Yeah, right. Well, okay. So then he hangs up immediately, and they <laughs> never speak again. Oh, my gosh. Typical male. First of all, that's fair, because she's crazy. Sounds like it. Anyway. I mean, that or he was leading her along for a long, long time. I don't know. I mean, if you pair the type of quote, movies they were making together. And then, I mean... <laughs> yeah, but whose idea was the movies? I mean... You I'm... think that was her idea, or you think that was his idea? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> well, it's all speculation at this point, so I guess it doesn't really matter, but... It does, she went along with it. So she's just as crazy as he is, apparently. Yep, yep, yep. Well, anyway, so that at that, I guess this gives you a pretty good idea of how he feels about relationships, right? Like, I guess seeing his parents divorce and get back together and then divorce. Yeah, he's definitely unsure for sure. Yeah, he's probably not a big fan of relationships to begin with. They yeah, just, and they don't go well around. In him. all honesty, if you think about it, she probably made it worse. She probably scared the crap out of him. Right. Okay, go ahead. Mm -hmm. Okay, so speaking of relationships, his mother and Jake West end up, their relationship ends up getting strained. Uh, they fight a lot. And West becomes hostile towards Mary and Dean at one point telling Mary that he doesn't want her at the candy factory anymore. Even though it's her candy factory. So he tells her to go home and not to come back. So. In 1963, Mary and Jake get a divorce, and Mary starts a new candy company in the same neighborhood named the Coral Candy Company. So she creates one candy company only to turn around and create another one. Right. To, that's going to compete with it. 
the direct competition to her previous candy company that her ex-husband now runs. Okay. So, still, you know, the relationship trend is kind of there. I mean, so, so it makes you wonder, was it all her fault or was it the her ex-husband? You know, everybody fault? kind of everybody that that talks about her says she was a really nice lady and that she was just real easygoing and not hard to get along with at all. I don't know. Unless you're married to her. True. True that. Then she's not so nice and the most difficult to get along with. Yep. You never know. You never know till you marry him and then you find out. Exactly. That's how it goes. Yep. So as a, as a result of this whole scenario, Jake West begins a PR assault on the Coral Candy Company because they're now competitors, right? So he starts going around the neighborhood spreading rumors and telling people how bad Coral Candy Company is and that they're not using the best ingredients. And they're probably using literally the same thing he's using because she created both. Yeah, it's probably the same exact recipe. (laughs) In fact, it's probably better. Coral Candy Company is probably better than pecan prince at this point because yeah she's had opportunity to refine her skills right she knows what she's doing (laughs) which they actually said that that dean so she appointed dean as the vice president of the company and stanley was the secretary treasurer not real sure why those exact titles but i guess either way you gotta come up with something they said that dean was really really involved in the making of the candy and that he was really good. Like he was kind of the mastermind behind the whole thing. So to the point that he was there working tons of hours, I mean, he was constantly, constantly working, constantly making new stuff. So he was kind of the, he was kind of the brains behind the whole thing. So at one point, an employee of Coral Candy Company, a young man went to Mary with allegations that Dean had made sexual advances towards him. Towards a man? Yes, towards a young man. That's where I was headed to begin with, remember? I asked you, remember? Right, right. (laughs) We hadn't got there yet. So, of course, Mary turns around and fires the guy. And on August 10th of 1964, so what does that make him? Does that make him 25? Yeah. That is 25 years old. So at 25 years old, he joins the Army. So August 10th, 1964, at 25 years old, Dean joins the Army. He is at, he goes to Fort Polk, Louisiana for basic training, and he ends up getting stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia to train as a radio repairman before he was permanently stationed at Fort Hood, Texas. So we know where that's at. Right. So a radio repairman for the army or the army. So I, it's not, I didn't know they had like specialized like men for their radios. Oh, I mean, they got to have somebody to work on them. Right. Right. You got to have mean, a maintenance guy to keep the radio running. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I mean, I get it. It's understandable. I just didn't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, I'm very familiar with Fort Hood. As is probably the rest of America for all of our uh, out-of-states, out-of-the-states listeners. Yeah, there's a lot that goes on there. Yeah, look it up. It's the most interesting thing and sad at the same time. We might have to do some stories on that at some point. 
So uh, not a single negative report or blemish was on Dean Coral's military record, like completely spotless. The dude had absolutely zero problems. But people said he hated the military lifestyle. Apparently, Mary needed help with Coral Candy Company. And she sent a letter to the military asking that he be released to come help as like a hardship release. I don't know if that's because she really needed help as much as she just wanted him to get out of there because she knew how much she hated it. She, she knew how much he hated it. But either way, so she applies for the hardship or hardship release, and he is granted an honorable discharge on June 11th, 1965. According to his friends, he had mentioned that he found out he was gay in the military. I knew it. Yeah. So that's that's how that all got started. Other friends and acquaintances mentioned that they noticed a change in him towards younger teen boys, not necessarily men of his age. And at this point, so when he gets back to the candy company, Mary and Jake are in a major competition for their share of the of the candy market in Houston. And Dean was described as a workaholic by the neighbor, a lady named Dorothy Hillegeist. He said that he was constantly there late, late into the night and that she remembered how much respect she had for him for just getting after it. Like she said, he was just constantly, constantly working his butt off. And she said it was pretty, it was something she wanted her kids to grow up to be or be like. So no matter, no matter how many hours he worked, he would always find time to entertain the neighborhood kids. So they would come and hang out. He would hand out candy regularly to the neighborhood kids. And at one point he installed a pool table in the back of the factory for the older kids, which kind of became like a neighborhood hangout. So constantly had kids of, of kind of all ages hanging out at the, at the factory to the point that Dorothy Hillegeist was saying that, you know, she was trying to keep her son from hanging out over there, not because she was worried about anything, but because she felt bad, like the kids were holding him back, right? Like they were getting in his way and he couldn't get the job done. So she just, she felt like her kids became a nuisance. So she kept getting onto her kids about going over there and playing and telling them not to, not to bother the man. And they, they're not bothering him. Not at all. Not at he all. Did, right. I, he he seemed to love it. He absolutely yeah. loved all the attention he was getting. And nobody raises any flags because he's part owner in a candy company. Yeah, he's the candy so it's man. Fine. He's a great guy. He's just. Yeah. I mean, who gives out free candy? Nobody. That's only nice people give out free candy. But see now, <laughs> this day and age, everybody's like, uh, "Oh, they're right. too nice." What do we know? What do we know? It's like oh, they're too nice. Something's not right about that. Put him in jail. Put the man in jail. Okay, so in 1967, Dean becomes friends with 12-year-old David Owen Brooks. He's one of the teens that regularly frequents the rear of the the Coral Candy Company, and he began hanging out with Dean more and more. David Brooks mentioned that Coral was the only friend that he had who who didn't make fun of his looks. Apparently, he had 
freckles and glasses and all that. He was kind of a nerdy kid and everybody made fun of him. And he said that Dean kind of became like a father figure to him. And he was just nice. David's parents had divorced. His father lived in the Heights and his mom moved to Beaumont. So at age 15, Brooks dropped out of high school in the Heights and moved to Beaumont with his mom. Shortly after moving to Beaumont with his mom, his mom and his half-sister moved to Colorado. And it was kind of odd. This is a weird one, but apparently that is the last time that David Brooks saw his mother. Oh, that's a little extreme. A little weird. It's like one extreme to the next. Yeah. So he moves back to the Heights with his dad and literally never, we're talking 15 years old. He drops out of high school, moves with his, moves in with his mom. His mom moves to Colorado and he never sees his mom again. And he just moves back in with his dad. I don't know. It's a weird one. But I guess the dysfunction there kind of. Well, I mean, it also correlates with him spending so much time with the Candyman. Right. True, true. David moved back to the Heights with his dad, but it basically he would visit his dad a lot, but he basically stayed with Dean Coral. So he moved in with Dean Coral. And everybody's just okay with this because apparently so he owns a candy company. It's fine. So let me, let me, let me kind of go back a little bit here and kind of explain what's going on here because so, so the Heights, like I said, it's a, it's a low income neighborhood area of Houston. I don't know how to word this is basically the kids kind of grew up with this. They had this knowledge that, okay, our parents didn't go anywhere in life. We're poor. We're not going anywhere in life. This was kind of one of those, I guess this was the day and age where you were either rich or you were poor. And these people were all dirt poor. So they kind of all knew, all the kids kind of knew that they weren't going anywhere in life. And it was, it was bleak, right? So if you kind of, if you think about it in that scenario, you've got a whole bunch of kids in a neighborhood where the parents are kind of you know, they go to work, they come home, they go to work, they come home. They're just, they're not, they don't have any money at all to speak of. So the kids kind of get left on the wayside. And then you couple that with the fact that they kind of have a bleak view of the future. They get into drugs, they get into a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of trouble that you probably wouldn't see in a more affluent neighborhood, right? Where people kind of had goals. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, yeah, I I mean, I think it still happens today and like yeah. You know, in in poor neighborhoods, it's uh, you know, kids are brought up to think that that's all they're ever going to have. Occasionally yeah. you run across the one that has hopes and dreams that aspire. Right. But uh yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a it, yeah. I see yeah. it. Well, one of the so one of the kids in the neighborhood was quoted as saying that his parents had told him that everything would brighten up in college. And of course he laughed and was like, nobody from the Heights goes to college, right? That's just not a thing. They knew that the most prominent pastimes for kind of that age group of kids was huffing acrylic paint, weed and pills. So this is, I don't want to 
say I, I'm not looking down on the kids, right? Because obviously this is a scenario where they just don't have anything to look forward to and they just kind of fall back on whatever vice they can find. But it gives you more of an idea of kind of why maybe David Brooks moving in with Dean Coral just wasn't even looked at, right? Or wasn't even, nobody even batted an eye because this was kind of, he was either doing that or he was going to go huff paint, right? So, it, hey, maybe at least he had a decent role model is kind of what they were probably looking at it like. Yeah, nobody's considering, you know, child predators. Right. And again, keep in mind, this is the 1950s, right? This kind of thing doesn't happen, right? People right. don't do that. That's nobody's nobody does that. Right. So, you know, I think it's just a that entire environment was conducive to creating what we're fixing to be talking about. So Brooks would later tell everyone when all the info starts coming out that Dean had started sexually abusing him from the age of 12 and would pay him off with gifts candy. and cash. Oh. Nope, gifts and cash. The candy was over with, but they'd already oh. passed that whole spot up. Yeah, he used the candy to lure him in. Once he gets him there, he keeps him with money and, ca and gifts. Yeah, he basically bribes him, right? Right. So it got to that to that scenario, and it was like, well, how about yeah. you take this and don't tell anybody? Yeah. It's insane. It's, I don't know, it's just crazy to think that 12-year-olds, like, don't speak up about stuff like that. No, basically, people people basically said that David Brooks was living off of Dean Coral. So, but he was basically, I mean, David David Brooks was his only income was from Dean Coral. So he didn't have a job. He lived with Dean Coral. Sounds to me like that's all he needed. <laughs> yeah. So, the Coral Candy Company closes down. So no more candy company. Coral goes and starts working for Houston Lighting and Power. And on seven or September 25th, 1970, the first victim is murdered. So let's keep this in mind. I want to just make sure everybody understands what I'm fixing to go through here is a, it's all an account from the accomplices. Okay, so I'm not saying they're lying and I'm not saying they're not lying, but we don't know, right? All we know at this point is their word for how all this went down because they don't, this type of thing was going on for a short period of time and nobody investigated anything. All we know is like disappearance dates, right? So we don't know the actual facts of how this all went down unless you hear it from the accomplices. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you're saying this is all this is all basically every bit of the 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 stuff that I'm fixing to say is mm -hmm. all a story told by the accomplices in this in this entire thing. So, so none of this is a first-hand account. Right. None of this has been proven. None of this has real okay. um, evidence behind it other than this is what they said happened. Right. So you kind of have to take things with a grain of salt. Okay. Gotcha. 
Okay. So September 25th, the first victim, Jeffrey Conan, uh, was hitchhiking home from UT, University of Texas, with a friend. Uh, he was dropped off at the corner of Westheimer Road and South Voss Road. And basically, the theory behind this one is he was offered a ride home by Dean Coral. Dean, at that point, lived in an apartment on uh, Yorktown Street, which was really close to that intersection where they picked him up. I guess graphic warning, this gets this gets heavy, but he was molested, murdered, and buried on High Island Beach, which is not far at all from that from the heights. He died of asphyxiation caused by manual strangulation with a cloth gag in his mouth. Body was buried under a large boulder, covered in lime, wrapped in plastic, naked with his hands and feet tied. A little while later, so this is, we're talking about September 25th, 1970. We're talking somewhere in November. Brooks walks in on Coral sexually assaulting two teen boys who are tied to the bed. So his all-time protege. Right. So let's 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 put this in perspective. Right. So wow. Brooks is in a I'm going to call it a consensual relationship at this point, right? He's young. He's underage, but he's not this isn't something he's fighting, right? He's in this weird relationship with Dean Coral at this point. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even know. He doesn't even know about Jeffrey Conan. Okay. So Jeffrey Conan was the first murder. At this point, he didn't even know about Jeffrey Conan. That whole thing happened. And Brooks didn't know anything went down. All he knows now is that he comes home. He walks in and Dean Coral has two boys tied to the bed. And he's sexually assaulting him. I don't know that he was shocked by this too much because it kind of almost mirrored the type of thing that Dean would do with him. But he wasn't happy about it. So he freaks out. Coral tells him to get out. And Brooks leaves. So David Brooks leaves, comes back a couple hours later. Wait a minute. Yeah. So he walks in on this event, yep. and he's just like, all right, do something. I'm going to let you do your thing. I'll be back later. Well, so it was described that he freaked out. Yeah. We don't know how much he freaked out. He right. Wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't happy with the situation, and he obvi- it, obviously, it obviously caught him off guard. Yeah. But, yeah, he left. A couple hours later, he comes back. Yeah. And that's the point that Coral tells him that he killed the boys. Mm -hmm. And then he offers him a car to Mm. keep quiet. So he ends up buying Brooks the 1969 green Corvette. Damn. Like, what the heck? Yeah, I guess in that neighborhood, right? If somebody's going to buy you a Corvette, that's a pretty big deal. As a kid, he's probably thinking, okay, I'll do whatever you want, it's fine. <laughs> Jeez. I'm sitting here thinking gifts like, you know, video games or something. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Slinkies and shit. 
But a Corvette, that's... No. Jeez. Now that he knows, Coral offers him $200 per boy mm. that he can bring to the apartment. <gasps> oh, my. You know, at this point, he's invested. Right? He's already I keeping mean, quiet about what's happening to him. Right. Now, he's accepted a car in exchange for his silence on these. And now he's looking to get paid for it. He's officially employed. I did a little research. So $200 back then was worth about $1,500 today. Ooh! And that was per boy. Per boy. That he knows Dean is planning to molest possibly torture and then murder okay but did he ever at any point in time think you know what if i go speak to of age boys and ask them to come back with me voluntarily i can pay them fifteen hundred dollars and then i don't have to murder nobody well it'd be two hundred dollars or yeah still but no i don't see what you're saying so explain explain that scenario again. So I'm saying, like, all he had to do, right, mm-hmm. is go find boys that were of age and be like, yo, you want to come home with me and let me do some stuff? I will pay you $200 and nobody has to die. And you're saying Dean doing this? Yeah. Well, that's not what Dean wanted. Dean wasn't into consensual sex. Yeah, but you can get somebody to act like it's not consensual. They can pretend. You know, do some role-playing. I don't understand why people have to Well, die. again, let's keep in mind, this is 1970. Yeah, right? there's not going to be a lot of people that are like, oh yeah, not totally a real, go home with There's not the a dude. real hopping gay scene in the Heights at this point. I gotcha. Um, but it was mentioned that this actually, he did have a few relationships with a few different actual men. And they just didn't seem to, it was kind of a one night stand type of thing. And then they, they didn't, uh, they didn't last long. What's really sad is the two boys that Brooks mentioned that he walked in on, nobody ever found them. Nobody knows who they were. Nobody knows anything about that. Like what, what happened to those? I mean, obviously they were killed according to David Brooks. So all they know is... The, all their existence in general is based off of Brooke saying that they were there. They were abducted, they were is... raped, they were murdered, and they were buried, and nobody knows where. Nobody found anything. That is so still sad. Still to this day. So sad. So, on December 13th, 1970, Brooks brings home James Glass and Danny Yates, both 14 years old. And this is the first mention of the torture board. So Coral had constructed a piece of plywood that was six feet by three feet with it was there were holes drilled in the corners and then ropes came from there. And he would tie these boys to the board and do unspeakable things to them for sometimes days on end. So James Glass had apparently hung out in the apartment in the past, so he had been there for parties. 
both boys were raped, strangled, and they were buried in a boat shed that was rented November 17th, 1970. Oh my God. And these are like young boys, right? These are young boys. That was, they both, those two were 14. Oh my God. So the boat stall was on the 4,500 block of Silver Bell Street in Pasadena. And yeah. So January 30th, 1971. So we're talking a month later. Brooks and Coral see Donald and Jerry Waldrop walking down the street. So Coral had moved to a different apartment at this point. He was on Mangum Road. And the Waldrop brothers were at a friend's house discussing a bowling league. And they were walking home from their friend's house. And they got into Dean Coral's white van. I guess they were accepting a ride home. Uh, they were taken back to Dean's apartment on Mangum Road, raped, tortured, strangled, and then buried in the boat shed. Randall Lee Harvey was last seen riding his bike towards Oak Forest, which is, interestingly enough, the third largest group of subdivisions in Harris County. He worked at a gas station there. He was 15 years old. And he died of a gunshot wound to the head at the apartment on Mangum Street again. Our serial killer has changed his his style. Is he progressing? Or was it just a one-off? Well, so there's another story that was kind of circulated around that apparently when Dean Quarles' mom and Jake West started fighting severely but right before they ended up splitting up and making new candy companies. Apparently he had gotten, she had gotten into a pretty severe fight and Dean had bought her a 22 pistol. So I don't know. This is everything is mentioned. Everything that's mentioned in here is based on a 22 pistol. So I kind of have a feeling maybe that had something to do with it, but yeah, there's really no mention of, why he died of a gunshot wound to the head instead of strangulation like the rest of these. So it wasn't progression, so he didn't continue with the gun. No, it's kind of a one off. It's just kind of whatever. Yeah. Well it's not a one off, but it's it's not really there's no real MO to how he decides to finish the job. Yeah. Which makes it even crazier because then it becomes unpredictable. Right. So that was in March of 1971. In May, so May 29th of 1971, uh, David Hillegeist, 13 years old, and Gregory Malley, 16 years old. I don't know if you remember the Hillegeist name. Does that ring a bell? Mm -mm. So remember I mentioned the neighbor from the candy company that was, she was hoping that her boys would grow up to be like him? Yeah, yeah. That was... David Hillegeist's mother. Oh, okay. So, David Hillegeist and Gregory Malley disappear uh, May 29th, 1971. They're murdered. There's not a whole lot of mention of what all was done to them, but, I mean, I'm sure we can kind of assume this, the, uh, the tactics that were used. Right, at this point, it's probably the worst. Right. 
So Randall Lee Harvey, David Hillegeist, and Gregory Malley all were buried in the boat shed. So now this is, so Elmer Wayne Henley, 15 years old, was actually going around helping post flyers for David Hillegeist's family following his disappearance. And they were offering a reward for any information, hopefully leading to finding David Hillegeist. We'll mention Elmer Wayne Henley a little bit more here in a little while. On August 17th, 1971, Reuben Watson Haney was walking home from the movie theater when he apparently gets a ride from Dean and David Brooks, and he's told they were having a party. He goes back to their apartment. There's some drugs passed around at some point. He's tied up, molested, tortured, strangled, and buried in the boat shed. Uh, September 1971, Coral moves to another apartment in the Houston Heights. And according to, to David Brooks, Coral committed two more murders at that apartment with his help. Uh, one of the two was just before Wayne Henley comes into the picture. The identity of those two victims as well were never revealed. Oh my God, that is terrible. Again, nobody knows who those two were. So now we and have, again, what, four? Four that are unidentified, never to be found. Right, and only known by witnesses. Right, right. Wow. If they were found, we don't know, right? They may be at a, a John Doe somewhere in Houston, but they were never identified as his victims. And again, like I said, this is all based on the accomplice's word. So it's only what they know, right? They're not Dean Coral. Dean Coral only knows what all Dean Coral did. All we know is what these two boys know, right? So that's this whole story. I mean, the insane amount of bodies that we're talking about here may not even be half of what may have really happened in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. Like, most of the time, you know, I watch a lot of Criminal Minds. So most of the time, they're built up to this. So it's likely that his first victims were before he even brought in Brooks. Right. That's what I'm getting at is yeah. they know of the first two because Brooks saw it, right? But when did this really start? I mean, who knows how you can keep that a secret for too long, but that's not to say there weren't 15 murders before he had a clue. Okay, so in December of 1971, Brooks, Brooks brings Elmer Wayne Henley Jr. to the apartment, most likely as another victim. For some reason, Dean decided not to kill him and decided to make him an accomplice instead. So, again, this is another one of those scenarios where we don't know how many times Wayne, as we'll call him from here on out, we don't know how many times he had been over there, how much time he had spent with him. I mean, this was, let's just say this was a drug hangout, right? This is, these kids were basically enticed over to the apartment with, 
when we say party, we're not talking about a birthday party, right? We're talking about weed. We're talking about huffing paint. We're talking about pills. So, and again, not to shame anybody, right? Because we don't know their scenarios. But these kids were all offered basically drugs to come over and hang out at the apartment. So Wayne Henley, for some reason, makes an impression on Dean Coral. And Dean decided not to kill him. Dean offers him $200 per boy, the same deal that he's doing with Brooks. And he's basically explained as, or he's, he's told this elaborate story that there is a gay slavery ring operating out of Dallas and that these boys aren't being killed. They're, bring, they're being shipped off to Dallas for this sex slave ring. Okay, because that's better than murder. Well, I mean, it's one step better, right? I mean, I mean, is it? It's not, I don't know. I feel like it would almost be better for them to well, be put out so of their misery than to be raped their entire life. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. I guess I haven't been in either one of those scenarios, so I couldn't tell you. But I guess I could imagine that would possibly be better. But regardless whether or not that's better right so henley wayne was kind of described as a petty thief right so he had a job he did kind of odd jobs a lot but he would also steal stuff and he would go around and sell it for you know change so at this point henley refused he said no he doesn't want anything to do with it he leaves Nothing more is really said about that. Apparently, he didn't feel like it was a big deal to go tell anybody about it. But he didn't want to be involved. So early in 1972, Henley's family goes through some financial trouble, and he decides to take Coral up on the offer. So at this point, he's not making as much money as he should have been, and everybody's broke, and there's a man offering today's value of $1,500 to, you know, no big deal, bring boys over for a sex slavery ring in Dallas. So February 1972, Coral is living at 925 Schuler Street. And this is when the first abduction that Henley was involved in happens. Wayne and Dean pick up a boy at the corner of 11th and Studewood and invited him to the house to smoke weed. Uh, at some point, Wayne, at some point, handcuffs himself and using a key in his back pocket, unlocks the handcuffs as like a magic trick, right? And so then he's joking around, tells the boy, oh, I bet you can't do that. They convince the boy to try. And as soon as he puts the cuffs on, he's blindfolded, gagged. And Wayne leaves. So... So they literally convince him to handcuff himself. Yep. And that's kind of the sadistic stuff that's been going on throughout this whole thing. Again, all these stories that we're talking about, there's really no elaboration when it comes to this kind of thing because it's more like, oh, well, what happened to this one? What happened to this one? What happened to this one? And they're just banging out stories. The elaborate details here. I'm sure get really, really disgusting. I mean, there was some sadistic stuff going on. And to the point that David Brooks even mentioned that Wayne was extremely sadistic 
in some of the things he was doing. So these two boys are involved in this whole thing as well, right? I mean, we know they're helping murder, but they're also helping molest, rape, all of the everything, the torture. They're involved in all of it. So it's some really heavy stuff that you'll get little glimpses of, but I mean, the imagination here can just, I mean, my God, there's so much that again, you get little bits and pieces and you just have to assume that the majority of all this stuff was happening to every one of these boys, right? This wasn't a scenario where they just show up, get murdered, get buried, right? As much as it sounds like that, there's a lot more to this story. And it's really rough. Yeah, like you said, it's it's heavy. Yeah. And again, I mean, I could go into a lot more detail, but it's almost like, what's the point? Because it just goes on and on and on. And it just, man, it gets bad. So at this point, Wayne leaves because basically to him, the job's done, right? And I think he got paid for that one. But as we find out later, Dean wasn't really paying him $200 a piece. I mean, they were, I think Dean said he got paid one time and Brooks was probably in the same scenario there where he, he may have got paid once, maybe twice, but Brooks was kind of a different ball game because he lived with Dean anyway. So he was just kind of living off of Dean. But it turned out that even though Wayne and Dean were bringing these boys over, they really weren't getting paid. It was just kind of the what kicked it off. And I guess it's to be mentioned that the identity of that boy as well was never found. So nobody knows who that boy was either. So that's five now. If you're counting. Oh, yeah, I'm counting. It's just it's just baffling to me how these kids can come up and be like, oh, well, I saw this guy. I saw this kid at this time. I saw this kid at this time. And nobody knows who they are. Right. Like their entire existence is. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? Right. Are you going to be like, oh, what's his name? No. Right. They don't. I would imagine no, I get in that scenario, these kids being the age that they are, they don't want to personalize any of this. No, yeah, I totally get to, that. Right? It's just one of those things where it's like, so when yeah. they were obviously finding these bodies later on, like, it's just crazy that these events were not necessarily accounted for. Right. If that makes sense. Right. No, it makes perfect sense. And let's kind of roll back a little bit here just to say that According to everyone in the Heights at this point in time, these kids are coming up missing left and right. And they're constantly, the parents are constantly calling the police. They're saying, hey, my kid didn't come home. It's not like him. Obviously, we all know how the police react to your child not coming home that night. Oh, they ran away, right? But it was even more compounded in this scenario because in the Heights, being as poor as it was, it was really well known that the cops would only get involved in murders if it was someone of importance, right? So this was not, they're not coming out here and, and putting their best foot forward on every single case. They're just kind of like, oh yeah, we'll take a note of that. And if something comes up, we'll deal with it, right? So you can kind of, again, this 
as we said earlier, this whole this whole environment is just fully conducive to somebody like Dean Coral, where you can literally do whatever you want. As long as you don't get caught one time, you can do this forever. Because until the police get wind of what you're doing by something more than a family member or somebody saying, hey, he's not here anymore, you're just not going to have any type of resistance at all. And this is not a big neighborhood. This is these people all know each other. And we'll get into more of that shortly. But that's I just wanted to kind of rewind and give kind of the way the. The police viewed this whole area. So on March 24th, 1972. Henley, Brooks and Coral pick up Frank Aguirre, who was a friend of Wayne Henley in Dean Coral's white van. Uh, he was invited back to the apartment to, again, drink beer, smoke weed. Uh, after smoking and drinking, a gear starts playing with handcuffs because this is another thing that th these handcuffs were just laying around in the apartment, and it was well known. All the kids that hung out in Dean Coral's apartment said there were always handcuffs laying around. Never thought anything weird about it. They were just there. So... You can imagine Frank Aguirre, drunk, slightly high, sees some handcuffs, starts messing with them. And right when he starts playing with the handcuffs, Dean Coral jumps on him, handcuffs his hands behind his back. And Wayne Henley said that he tried to talk Coral and Brooks out of abduct abducting Frank. And this is when Dean reveals to Wayne that he'd actually murdered all of the previous boys and that he had the same fate planned for Frank. Oh, my God. And so Wayne naturally assists and then helps bury him. Naturally? Uh, that's why I said it with a question mark. I don't know what... I mean... You can't, we can't assume what goes through these kids' head, but my God. So obviously we don't know the majority of the details there because Wayne being friends with Frank, I would assume would be a lot less forthcoming with any of the details, but we know that he was murdered and he was buried at, at High Island Beach along with a few of the other ones. So April 20th, 1972, so another month later, again, all three grab Mark Scott and they drag him to the van. They take him to the apartment. He starts fighting. He's one of the only ones that I heard that actually started fighting. I was fixing to say, yeah, finally, oh. somebody's fighting back. Right. He gets his hand free. He grabs a knife from somewhere and slices at Dean Coral and just barely grazed him. Cut his shirt, barely cut him a little bit. At this point, Wayne Henley puts a gun to his head and he gives up. So they tie him to the torture board. Again, we can assume what all happened to him. And he, as well, 
is murdered and buried at High Island Beach. Sometime in April 1972, so we're talking this last one was the 20th, so sometime between the 20th and the end of April, they abduct Billy Balch and Johnny DeLome. After they torture and rape the boys, Coral strangles Billy Balch, and when Johnny DeLome sees this, he freaks out. And as he's facing Wayne, freaking out, Coral, to his right, yells, hey, Johnny. Johnny turns his head, and Dean Coral shoots him in the face. Oh, my God. He's just ruthless. A short time later, Johnny DeLome wakes up. What? And Wayne grabs the gun, points it at Johnny DeLome again, and DeLome says, Wayne, please don't. And that's when Wayne and Dean strangle him. (gasps) And he, too, is buried at High Island Beach. Oh, my God. So again, like I said, these stories and these little details that keep coming out, you can just imagine what these boys have gone through in all these scenarios. I mean, it's it's rough. I mean, obviously it's terrible for the victims, but it's also terrible for these boys having to help and witness it. It's yep. awful. Yeah, you've got to wonder what goes through the minds of I mean, we know Dean Coral is a sadistic maniac, but these two boys being groomed into this same mindset, man, you can only imagine what what that does to him. Oh, man. Okay, so June 26, 1972, so keep in mind this last one was the end of April. So you had all of May and most of June before they find another victim. So June 26th, Dean Coral moves to an apartment on Schuler Street, and nobody really explains how Billy Rittinger gets to the apartment, 19 years old, but he's there, assuming he's partying, doing the same type of thing. He was tied up, tied to the torture board, abused, and then Brooks convinces Dean Coral to release him. We don't know why. We just know that's what happened. So, again, details are not there. But he was released. He was he was tortured. And he was abused, but he was released and he just left and he did not go to the police. Oh, that's what I was wondering. Like, that's why this stuff happens, because people don't say something. Right. He didn't say anything. Now, keep in mind, again, here we are, 1972. You're you're at a friend's house doing drugs in the first place, right? You're doing things that are slightly shady. Next thing you know, you get molested, right? And what do we know about people that get molested? They kind of have a hard time 
coming out and saying that, right? Because right. they don't want people to think that anything they negative of them. Yeah. Right. Well, because, I, I mean, it's the typical, like, for females anyway, first of all, you don't hear a lot about men getting molested. So, or boys, right? right? So it's mostly coming from females. And then what what do the guys always say back then when, when a female says that they were raped or whatever? Oh, she must have been asking for it. And that's why a yeah. lot of them don't say anything. Because they're ridiculed instead of listened to. Exactly. So And that's exactly. likely what would happen to him, especially being a male molested by another male who wants to be treated yep. differently because yep. of what happened to you. Right. And obviously you've got to think about, you know, your friends and everyone who, who knows you. They're all going to, there's always going to be that little thing, right? That everybody thinks about when they see you. So I can see why he wouldn't do it. But my God, if only, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's what I was watching. Uh, I don't remember some, one of the documentaries on Netflix. And they were saying, you know, if people would just consider how many other people it's going to affect later on because they're not going to stop. They're going to continue to hurt yeah. people. And all, all it takes is one person to come forward and say, this is what this person's doing to put a stop to all, all the other people's hurt and pain. Yep. Yep. Okay. So at some point at this Schuler street apartment, and we don't know quite what day or, or when exactly this happened, Wayne Henley attacks David Brooks as he's walking into the apartment, knocking him out. Dean Coral ties Brooks to the bed and rapes him repeatedly before untying him. And Brooks stays. So this is kind of... Wow. Like I said, this is... I mean, is, wasn't it already happening anyway? Like, kind of consensually? Kind, kind of. Like, but again, he doesn't want consensual, right? We've right. already seen that. So it's just a... It's a progression of terrible stuff. Yeah. Over and over again that these kids are being subjected to. And it's just, it, 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 where's the, where's the line, right? When you've done everything that Dean Coral's done, where's the line? I mean, anyway, so Brooks stays and continues to help Coral. Coral moves to Westcott Towers at this point. So we're talking somewhere around July of 1972. 17-year-old Stephen Sickman was last seen leaving a party in the Heights on July 19th, around midnight. They were, again, there's cause of death is kind of hard to pin down, but they said that his chest area was caved in and he was strangled and buried in the boat shed. His chest area was caved in? Right. Oh my God. So you can only imagine, again, right? the type of things that are going on here that could cause that type of trauma. August 21st, 1972, Roy Eugene Bunton was 19 years old. He worked in a shoe store in Houston. Again, most likely offered a ride to work. He was bound, gagged, and shot twice in the head, buried in the boat shed. 
October 2nd. So we're talking a little over a month later. Wally J. Simino and Richard Hembry get into Brooks's Corvette. They're driven to the Westcott Towers apartments. They do know that at some point, Wally Simino called his mom, and he only gets the word mama out before the calls ended. That's got to be terrible for a parent. Oh, like, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine. Oh. I'll lose According to... Oh, I'm telling you. According to Brooks, Kinley was waving the gun around, and he accidentally shot Hembry in the mouth before they strangled both of them and buried him in the boat shed on top of Danny Yates and James Glass. So there is a map of the actual boat shed that we can post on Facebook after we air this episode. So if people want to go look at that, if you want to look up the Facebook page, check out that photo. You can kind of, it gives a little bit more detail as to the orientation of all the bodies in this boat shed and it kind of gives sheds a little light as to how insane this whole thing really is so now november early november 1972 this is again a month later 18 year old willard branch was hitchhiking home from mount pleasant to houston he disappears nobody really knows where how he was picked up he was found gagged, buried in the boat shed with his genitals removed. He, they found them in a bag next to his body. <gasps> um, that's new. Yeah. So again. But why would they remove them and then put them next to his body? I mean, I guess they're burying everything. Well, it's like, honestly, it sounds to me like it's literally done just for the thrill of it like right right i mean we're we're talking about some people that are getting more and more sadistic as yeah. time goes on yeah. i am literally breezing through the details here i don't yeah i'm not bringing and again there's not a whole lot more to the details than what i'm telling because we're hearing these stories from wayne henley and david brooks right you know what i mean all yeah. they know is the condition of the bodies when they when they exhume them and whatever Wayne and, and David decide to tell people. Right. And that's pretty minimal. Right. Right. I mean, but it's there's, just, there's it sounds all... like he's so obviously, you know, originally he's getting off on kidnapping young boys. Right. Right. And it has now escalated to the point where that's not doing it for him. And so he's just torturing yes. them for Absolutely. Like, right. And we'll get into more of that detail in a little while because there is some more kind of light shed on certain types of things that he was doing um, that'll come into the picture as we go on. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 getting more and more sadistic every single time. Like the, you can tell this is a monster that as he feeds the monster, the monster gets bigger and, and nastier. And it's it's pretty scary just to think about somebody that can do this type of thing and still continue to walk the earth 
now we get to November 15th, 1972. So this previous one happened early November. This is, I'm going to say two weeks, maybe a week and a half later. 19-year-old Richard Kepner disappeared while he's walking to a phone booth. We don't know the details, but he was strangled and he was buried at High Island Beach. January 20th, 1973. This is what, roughly two months down the road. Coral moves to Wirt Road, W-I-R-T Road. It's in the Spring Branch District of Houston. In early February, they pick up Joseph Lyles. And again, no real mention on how they picked him up or where or anything like that. But he lived on the same street as Brooks, as David Brooks, which was Antoine Drive. I did not mention the cause of death there. But I'm going to say, again, strangled and buried in the boat shed. The damn boat shed. For crying out loud. If at the end of this thing you don't say that somebody has burnt that boat shed, I'm I'm going to be so sad and I'm going to go burn it myself. That's something I really was kind of curious to look up because they say where it's at. When we say boat shed, right, this is like a, imagine a storage unit or a storage facility. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's not like, it's not like it's just a random boat shed. It's multiple, multiple boat sheds in this one area that he's renting one of them. Wow. So that was Joseph Lyles. Again, strangled. Buried in the boat shed. Uh, on March 7th, Coral moves to 2020 Lamar Drive. Uh, this was previously his father's home in Pasadena. There are no known victims between the middle of February and June 4th, 1973. And the speculation is because they know that Dean Coral went to the hospital for a hydrocell. It's an accumulation of fluids around a testicle. And it's... <laughs> Of course. Yeah. Because if Apparently you keep it's very it in painful. his pants, that wouldn't happen. Good. I hope it is painful. So that would kind of explain the, the lull there for the few months. Apparently he gets over it. Well, that's not good at all. I wish he hadn't got over it. <laughs> well, don't we all? So at this point, in this in this lull, Wayne Henley decides that he's going to separate himself from Dean Coral, uh, and he moves to Mount Pleasant to try to kind of get away from him. And then he ends up moving right back in early June. So I don't know if we're seeing a pattern here, but they just can't seem to get away from each other. At this point, in so we're talking early June of 1973, the the murders become more brutal and more frequent. More brutal. Yes. Wayne Henley and David Brooks described it as kind of like a bloodlust. They said that they would notice Dean acting erratic. He'd start smoking more, and then he'd say, I'd need a new boy. 
And that's that was their cue to go find another victim. So on June 4th, 1973, 15-year-old William Ray Lawrence was last seen on 31st Street by his father. I don't know who said this, but one of the either either Wayne or David mentioned that they kept him alive for three days of torture and abuse. He was strangled and he was buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. So there was a spot on the beach of Lake Sam Rayburn. So where they started burying people. That place is known for that kind of thing though. This is not the only incident. Yeah. And this is also if you kind of you can kind of look at the timeline and how all this is going down and you'll notice they're running out of room in the boat right. shed. Right, obviously. So yeah, so they found a new place to start burying people. Yeah. So if um if you ever get a chance to look up the events at Lake Sam Rayburn, look that up cuz that place is crazy. Yeah. Also, I'm I I feel like like I said this is it's escalating because it's right. you know what's originally working for him is not working anymore. So he's got to right. spice it up. He's got to keep it interesting. He's going to mess up at some point though. Well, right. And at at some point when all this was over, the lady that was renting him the boat shed mentioned that he had actually asked to rent another boat shed. But they were full. They didn't have any available. So, and she described him as the nicest guy. They never had any problems. They said there was a bit of a smell that came out of the boat shed. Are you kidding me? But like- He's so nice, this serial killer. He was just so nice. I never right. would expect it. There was a smell. Mm-hmm. Crying out loud. I mean, you would think that would be a pretty serious problem that went 100% unnoticed. Yeah, I guess people don't really say anything like my neighbors behind me. Refuse to mow for some reason. I don't. I don't know if they just really like tall grass, but it's also attracting possums. Maybe they have kids buried back there. See? And it hides the mounds. See? I'm just saying, and they're, I'm not going to sit here and say that they're the nicest people because they are not. They're not friendly. So, and I do hear kids crying all the time. And I didn't know, I didn't think they had kids. You're the problem, Bree. I'm telling you, what am I supposed to do though? I'm supposed to go to the cops and be like, listen. Um, I'm the host of a podcast and I would like for you to go talk to them because it's freaking me out. <laughs> we know how this stuff works. I have no evidence we've, whatsoever. We've seen it all. I just suspect yep. it's just, it's like the whole, uh, yep. freaking bra and laundry thing. Like I'm pretty sure that they're hiding him under the flower bed in the backyard, but I have no evidence to support that. <laughs> Right. Well, let's and let's get into that. So there was actually a neighbor that said when all this was over with that they had heard some weird sounds coming from Dean Coral's apartment. And they don't but say anything. They didn't report anything. They said they were always partying over there and they always had loud music going. So it wasn't anything weird for a bang or a bump, right? Or somebody to yell things like stop him. Oh, see, that's a different, that's, okay. Right. But again, let's say you heard your neighbor say that. 
Would you really call the cops? Yeah, 100%. If I was outside okay. and I heard what sounded like someone... do anything? Huh? Do they have jurisdiction to do anything? Yeah. If you hear somebody yell, stop him, they could just be playing tag. They, they could just be playing tag. I'm just... I'm being devil's advocate here. I don't know that the cop... If you... Do you think if you called the cops right now and said, I heard my neighbor yell, stop him, I need you to go over there right now, and I need you to find out what's going on? I don't know that they'd do anything. Okay, so the last one we just talked about. So that one was June 4th, right? So within about two weeks, 20-year-old Raymond Stanley Blackburn. You notice they're also getting a little bit older. So I think this becomes more about the sadistic nature of things than the age. Raymond Stanley Blackburn was abducted, strangled, buried at Lake Sam Rayburn. No other real details were given. You know, I wonder if, like, but like you said, because they are getting a little older, I wonder if it's because they fight back more. You know what and I mean? Because a kid will kind of give knows. in, like to. I think it's almost it's almost like he's just it's happening so frequently now that he's just having to deal with whatever he gets. Right. Yeah. Right? He's not being able to be as picky as he probably liked to be. Right. And as long as it's not consensual, he's in it. He's into it, and that's you know he can do whatever he wants. But it's since it's getting so frequent, I just don't think he has a the opportunity to be picky. Okay, so June 6th, approximately three weeks after Raymond Stanley, Wayne Henley was taking driving lessons at Coach's Driving School. Now, this one hit me pretty hard because <laughs> this whole time, Henley still isn't driving, right? So this is Wayne Henley at, what are we talking, 16 years old, 15, 16 years old? And he's taken driving lessons, something that you would expect a kid to do. And he's involved in all of this. I mean, it just kind of brings home a little bit more the age of these kids and what they're. What a terrible. Existence they have to be having. I mean, that you, it has to change you in some of the worst ways I can't imagine. So at Coach's Driving School in Bel Air, Texas, which is next to like Sugarland, Baytown area, Wayne meets Homer Luis Garcia. He's 15 years old. So Wayne may have been 15. So on July 7th, 1973, Homer calls his mother and tells her that he was going to spend the night with a friend. He was later shot and he bled to death in Coral's bathtub. He was buried oh at God. Lake Sam Rayburn, and that's nothing else was really mentioned about what happened to him, but I'm sure you can imagine it was probably everything. Yeah, and then some. Everything and more, yeah, that we've talked about already. Wow. So that was that was July 7th, so now July 12th, five days later, 17-year-old John Sellers lived in Orange, Texas. Uh, he was found with four gunshot wounds to the chest from a rifle, from a high-power rifle. And he was bound 
and buried at High Island Beach. Now, there is speculation because I don't think Brooks and Wayne ever really explained John Sellers, but there's speculation that John Sellers had actually stopped to help Dean Coral because they were stuck in the sand on Highland Beach. So there was mention kind of in passing that somebody had stopped to help and they had told him no, yada, yada. Right. And there, there'd been kind of mention of, of how they almost got caught one time. And then this guy shows up buried in the same area, bound and wrapped in plastic the same way all the other ones that Dean Coral murdered were. But he was shot to death with a high-powered rifle, which led a lot of people to believe that maybe he was actually out there hunting and he walked in on something and maybe caught them in the act of burying a body and they had to dispatch him and then just bury him as well. So nobody really knows. That one was never fully explained. And again, like I said, with the amount of information that we have, which is very, very little, you know, you can only really go by what what they uncover. So July 1973, David Brooks gets married to his pregnant fiancée, Bridget Clark, and stops abducting boys for Coral. And he just lets him go. Yep. I mean, he just, well, he's I like, mean, okay, well, you don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, he never really had control over him in that sense anyway, right? Because remember, Wayne took off to try to get away from him and ran off to Mount Pleasant. It wasn't like Dean was, you know, telling them they couldn't leave. They just didn't want to. So David Brooks decides he's going to marry his fiance, and he's just over that life. So I don't know. It's just kind of a crazy thing. And then how did he how did he meet a girl whilst doing his extracurricular activities? I mean, I I guess it happens. I don't I know. Mean... I mean, again. All of these people, right, all of these people that are involved in this either know or know of Dean Coral, Wayne Henley, David Brooks, right? This is a huge group of kids that all know each other somehow, and it's not just boys, right? I mean, this is a, this is a full-on neighborhood that, you know, it's going to be boys and girls, and David Brooks and Wayne Henley to this day said they they weren't gay. They did it because Dean did, was into it. I mean, that was just kind of, I wouldn't say they were forced into it, but they weren't. I think they did it for the money initially, and then they did it for the shame probably after that, right? Because it's kind of the same scenario we were talking about earlier where if you if you get molested, you're not going to go out and tell anybody because now you're kind of admitting that you were taken advantage of. You got beat, right? You got, I mean, there's so many things that people don't want to admit about themselves. Yeah. That. I mean, I can, I agree with you and I fully, I fully believe that they probably weren't gay. I mean, yeah. I don't think that has anything to do with it. Right. But that's what I'm, that's all I'm saying is so apparently he met Bridget Clark. They had sex. She got pregnant. Yeah. I'm, well, I mean, these things are all a couple weeks apart. So it's not like they were there 24-7 doing all this. This was a few weeks here and a few weeks. I mean, it's 
every couple weeks, you've got time in between. That's a big secret to keep, you know? True. And so how, how, how can you face the world? Well, that's another thing is they're keeping this secret in this weird world where they're having parties over at Dean Quarles' house all the time. This isn't like Dean Quarles' house is where they kill everybody and nobody ever shows up there. They're always, them and all these other kids are always over at Dean's house hanging out. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I get it. So there's probably more than just boys hanging out at these parties. We'll get into a little bit more of that here in a second. But okay. I I would assume they had to be. But at the same time, there's something later that kind of says maybe not. So that'll be something we get into next episode. <laughs>